<laughs> I want to start off today uh, as we continue our series of blessed. Here's a question for you. I want you to ask or to answer. Be really honest with yourself. Who are the type of people or who is the person that is hardest for you to love? I remember years ago, I was uh, still a youth pastor, and uh, I, was, I had this uh, mentor in my life who, he was about 80 years old, he'd been a pastor his whole career, and uh, we went out to a coffee shop, and we went to a coffee shop, and the, the barista was all f- uh, covered with tattoos, which for most of us now is like, yeah, no big deal. So we got our drinks, we sat down, and he looked at me, and he was about 80 years old, and he said, you know, Ryan, he goes, I know, I know that this doesn't make sense, and the heart of God is for this person, and God loves him, but I, I just see it in all my upbringing. It's hard for me to look at that barista and, and to love him, because he goes, and I know that's wrong. It's just the reality. I appreciated that, heart, that humility. I appreciated that insight. I appreciated that he recognized there was a disconnect between what he knew was true and the feelings and, and kind of how he was brought up and, and, and all of that. And so we, it got me thinking about that. And, you know, we all have those type of people in our lives. And it might not be a type of person. It just might be a person that you know. <laughs> you might have a name and say, oh, that's the person that's hard to love. We're in this series called Bless, and we're going to be going through this all the way up until now, till Easter, and what we're talking about is loving like Jesus in everyday life, because we believe that the heart of God is for all people, and if the heart of God is for all people, and the mission that God has is that all people may know him and discover life in him, then we want to join him in that mission, on that process. But when we think about it, I know for many of us in here, uh, you might think, okay, that is a difficult thing to do, to join in this mission to help people know they're loved by God. That might just terrify you, that alone. Or maybe some of you are here today and you say, I'm not even a Christian. I'm just exploring faith. And so for you, this whole concept is, I'm not even sure what to believe or to think. And our, our goal through this series is a couple things. One, that we give you some really practical, easy things that, you, that we see Jesus do, that how he loved others, that we can do, that aren't the radical things. They're not the standing on the, the, the street corner and preaching. It's none of that. It's the little ways that we can love others the way Jesus did and ultimately helping people discover life in Christ. And for some of you, maybe you don't believe and you're here, and you're hearing this, what we want you to do is to see the heart of God and say, wow, if that's who Jesus was, and that's who his people are, then I'm interested. And that's our hope and our goal for you for this series. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 15. We're going to start off there, and what we're going to look at here is, to start off, is this is a story where Jesus is dealing with the disciples and a question, this first question I asked you that they had to be confronted with is who are the people that are hard for you to love? And we're gonna see a person that the disciples had a hard time loving and Jesus wants to confront that in this story. So Matthew chapter 15, if you are new to scripture, it's about two thirds of the way in your Bible. You're more than welcome to use your phone or other digital device as well. But if you're in a paper Bible, it's about two thirds of the way in what we call the New Testament. So Matthew chapter 15. Now, to set the, the, the stage, just so you know a little bit, at the time of this writing, Jesus, uh, at the time of Jesus, 
the Israelites, who believed that they were God's chosen people, we looked at that last week, that God chose them in Genesis chapter 12 to represent God's image to the ends of the earth. So that's who they were. That was in their identity. They had a promised land. That was the land that God said, hey, I want you to exist in this land, and through here, this will be the, the, the place where my name will be made known through the nations. So Israel had, the Israelites had this identity, but what happened was that for about the last 600 years at this point, that they went through a series of, at first, into exile, meaning that they were taken, captured from their land in Israel, and they were taken away. Once they came back to their land, they were under the occupation of, at first, the Persians, and then the Greek Empire, and now the Roman Empire. So all of their national identity and their identity as a people of God was in jeopardy, or it was being challenged, I'll put it that way. So at the time of Jesus, the Roman Empire was over them, and they saw every foreign empire who was conquering them as against the will of God. They need to not be here. And they started to, to develop this idea of who the Messiah would be, because their scriptures talked about a Messiah who would one day come. That means the anointed one, someone that God would send. We know now that that Messiah was fulfilled in Jesus. And they believed that that Messiah would come to rescue them, which we agree with, but what, what they started to believe is, oh, it's going to be a military victory. The Messiah is going to come and overthrow the Roman Empire, reestablish a, 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 king, a kingdom here in this land, and we're going to exist, and that's, so that's what God has for us. So part of that belief and, intention, and, and expectation also caused them to look at anyone who is on the outside as truly on the outside, outside of the will of God, outside of God's people, and ultimately not deserving of the love of the Messiah. So that was kind of something that creep, crept in. Know that. Now let's look at Matthew chapter 15 and see what's happening. Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 21. I'm going to read. I have a couple of these verses on the screen for you. Not all of them. It starts and says, Jesus went away from there. He was up in, in Galilee, which was in Israel. He goes from there and withdrew into the region of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. So I want you to notice a couple things. One, Jesus left that region of Galilee and went to Tyre and Sidon, outside of Israel. This is in modern-day Lebanon, kind of near the border of Israel and Lebanon. That's where he went with his disciples. So anytime that happens in Scripture, we need to ask, oh, he's, he's going somewhere for a reason. It's usually with his disciples a teaching opportunity. So this is the first clue. Like, he went somewhere. There's a teaching opportunity about to happen. Now notice, someone comes up to him. It's a Canaanite woman. So a Canaanite, we have other stories in Scripture where Jesus talked about the Good Samaritan, a very familiar story to many people. And, and the, good, the Samaritan was someone that a lot of Jews didn't like the Samaritans, but at least the Samaritans were half Jews. A Canaanite wasn't even a half Jew. To them, a Canaanite was like, these are the enemies of God. So here's this Canaanite woman who shows up and says to Jesus, have mercy on me, son of David, which is really interesting, because that was a title given to the Messiah. So she is actually saying, I recognize, I've heard the rumors, the reports. I recognize that you are the Messiah that Israel's been waiting for. That's kind of interesting note. She says, have mercy on me, for my daughter is severely demon-possessed. 
What an interesting statement she says. Have mercy on me. Notice the desperation in her voice. She is at the end of her rope here. She didn't say, have mercy on my daughter. She says, God, have mercy on me. This is hard. I've been struggling. My daughter's been struggling, and it's hard on me. Many of you can relate to being at the end of your rope. You know what that feeling is like where you just say, God, please, please. So that's the heart that she comes into. And every story that we read about Jesus, everything we know about him, we know that Jesus' heart, he has compassion, right? So his heart's going to break and he's going to say, oh man, you came to me, you claim that I'm Lord, I'm going to heal you right now. That's what we know of Jesus, but I want you to see what happens in the story because it's a bit surprising. Verse 23, Jesus did not answer her with even a word. He didn't even say anything. He just sat there. Now, the disciples came up and urged him immediately after that and said, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. Some of your translations actually use the word, she keeps crying at us. The, the, the disciples' response to her is not one of compassion. They're like, she's whining, get her out of here, she's bugging us. But she picked up the cue from Jesus because here's a couple things. Jesus didn't say a word to her. Now, in their culture, he was a rabbi, and it was pretty much forbidden for a rabbi to speak to a woman in their culture. So that's why some of the other stories where Jesus does interact, it's so shocking to the, to the Jewish hearers. They think, oh, why? You can't talk to a woman. But here, he doesn't respond to her at all. He's silent. It, and even more so, a Canaanite shouldn't be talking to a Jewish rabbi. What are you talking about? So his silence, actually, in this case, is reinforcing a belief that the disciples had. They thought what Jesus was doing was the right thing. They were like, that's right. You don't talk to her. A woman? A Canaanite? Yeah. This is, this is right. This is how we feel. So what Jesus' silence actually caused the disciples to take it one step further. When they heard the silence, they said, oh, yeah, okay, that's right. Don't talk to her. So I tell you what, Jesus, send her away. Get rid of her. That's obviously what we're supposed to do. Now look at the next verse, verse 24. Shocking. Jesus turn, answers, and he says this. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What? So Jesus goes, and who's he answer? I don't know. Is he answering the disciples? Is he answering the woman? Is he just saying, somebody, he's saying, I was sent only for the lost sheep of Israel. Now, here's what I believe is what he's doing. He is verbalizing their theology. He is calling out what they actually believe. He's saying, okay, yeah, so don't talk to her because I was sent only for the lost sheep of Israel. And at that point, they're like, oh, amen, brother, preach it. Yes, that's what we believe. There, you're right. That's what we think. Never mind the verse we looked at last week of Genesis 12, 3 that said that the Messiah would come and all the families of the earth would be blessed. Never mind the prophecy in Isaiah that says that the Messiah will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles as well and the glory of the people Israel. So never mind those verses. Jesus was leaning in on their understanding of, oh, the Messiah is only for us. So he verbalizes that. Then... Verse 25, 
the woman comes, she's still there. She came and began to bow down before Jesus and said, Lord, help me. Help me. Again, every story in scripture that we read, every time we see this, of course he's going to help you. That's what Jesus does. He sees your heart. He sees your brokenness. He sees your faith. He's, he's going to lean in. Of course he will. And look what Jesus says. It is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. Huh? <laughs> what? By the way, this is not, if you do street, if you like to preach from the street corner, that's not a verse you lead with, okay? <laughs> what? Jesus? What, essentially what Jesus just said is, he said, hey, the food belongs to these disciples. The food belongs to the Jews. So I'm not taking the food and going to throw it to the dogs. <laughs> he just insulted her. There's a little nuance of it that is actually a little, some scholars picked up on it. It's actually the little dogs, maybe the puppies, which it's like kind of making a term of, term of endearment, but it's like, I, I don't know how you do that. But, so why would Jesus say that? This is so out of character. This doesn't make any sense at all. She proclaims him as Messiah. She says who, she calls him Lord. She says, have mercy on me. He goes, I can't give food to dogs. What? I believe that in this moment, Jesus knew exactly how the woman would respond. But he wasn't doing this for her. He was doing this for his disciples. You see, because it started off, his silence or, made them think, oh yeah, yeah, you're not here for her. And then he verbalizes their theology. Oh, I'm only here for the lost sheep of Israel. And then in this statement, he actually is showing them, if we follow the train of thought of what, what, what does your theology lead to? It leads to this. It leads to God saying, I know you're broken. I know you're hurting. I know you want compassion, but I'm not for you. And I actually think in this moment when Jesus said that, the disciples weren't like, yes, all right, call her a dog. I think in that moment they were like, ooh, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't feel good. Wait a minute. I mean, that doesn't seem, Jesus says, are you sure? What, what's going on here? And the teaching moment was just made very clear. Because what Jesus was saying is, hey, your biases and your prejudice against this person, this is what it leads to. She's begging for compassion, and it leads to hard-heartedness. And I love how the woman responds, and this is why I think Jesus knew he could go there with her here because he knew what kind of woman he was dealing with so he says it's not good to take the food and 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 give it to the dogs if, if this is our theology if i'm only here for the last sheep of israel then sorry sorry you want compassion you're not getting it from me and look at her response yes lord but please help me for even the dogs feed on the crumbs that fall from her master's table oh I don't know if you know how good that is right there. I mean, that's, that's like, this is a smart woman right here. This is quite a response. She's just like, yeah, 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 sure, I'm a dog, but come on, dogs, get some crumbs. And I can't help but to think Jesus' heart exploded with joy and with compassion. I can't help but to think he just thought, oh, 
This is exactly the moment I wanted to have happen. And he says, oh, woman, which, by the way, is a term in endearment in their culture. Husbands, don't use that one now. But, <laughs> oh, woman, your faith is great, and it will be done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed at once. You see, if the theology, if, 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 the, if who God really is, is saying like, hey, I'm only for my chosen people. I'm not for anyone on the outside. And th- there's no hope for that. Then he wouldn't, he, wouldn't change, he wouldn't heal her in this moment. But he's actually saying, no, this theology that says I'm not for others is wrong. And, and your faith is great. You're healed. Teaching moment was solidified. I can't help but to think the disciples left there and there was some pretty good conversations going on. Do you think? The walk back to Galilee where Jesus is like, hey guys, you want to talk about this? And the disciples are like, nope, no, that's fine. Wow. Go back to our first question. Who are the people that are hard for you to love? See, the Canaanite woman was hard for the disciples to love. It didn't make sense didn't even fit with their view of who God was. Hmm. There's another time in the history of Israel, there's actually multiple, but there's another one I want to point you to where God addresses a similar situation. It's actually in Jeremiah chapter 29. I'm going to put the verses up there for you in just a moment. But Jeremiah 29 is in the Old Testament. It's one of the prophecies. And Jeremiah was written to the Israelites when they were living in exile. They used to be in Israel, and I told you earlier that they were taken away, and now they were living in Babylon in captivity. So notice what's happening here in Jeremiah 29. They aren't in the promised land. They aren't only among their people. They don't have their temple and their priests or any of those things, and they're living in a foreign land in exile. So you would think in that time, God would say, okay, you're my chosen people, so just hunker down and just ride the storm. But look what he says. We're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 29. And we're going to pick it up in, uh, I'll pick it up in verse 4 here. It says, this is what the Lord of the armies, the God of Israel, says to the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So this is a prophecy given to those who are now living in, in exile, no longer in their promised land. Verse 5, he says this, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and fathers, sons and daughters, and grow in numbers there, and do not decrease. So essentially, he says this. Hey, while you're there, keep living your lives. Keep living your lives. Buy houses, get jobs, plant gardens, eat the produce, expand your families, have grandkids. In other words, you're going to be there a while, and we know that he actually prophesies that they'll be there for 70 years. He says, you're going to be there. So go on with your life. This is going against the thought that maybe you would say, wait, wait, we're not where we're supposed to be. We're just longing to get back to Jerusalem. We just want to get back to the temple. We just want it. We, this is getting too hard. We live in a land where nobody believes what we believe, where our leaders are all non, they're non-Jews. They don't, they're not for us. Let's just, this, in this, let's just circle up, circle in, and be about ourselves. Verse 7. So God says, no, 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 go on with your lives. And look at this. I want you to see this. Seek the prosperity of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord in its behalf, for in its prosperity you will, uh, will be your prosperity. In other words, God's saying this. Seek the blessing, 
my favor on the city where I have sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For as it is blessed, you will be blessed. Wait, 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 hold on. Babylon? You want me to pray for Babylon? This is the city that represents anti-God? Really? You want me to pray for Encinitas? You want me to pray for political leaders that I don't agree with? You want me to pray for teachers who teach things that go against my faith? What? Seek their prosperity? Pray for them on my behalf? I don't know about that. What God says to Israel is, if you were to be my people, your geography doesn't matter. I have you where I have you for a reason. And I have you surrounded by the people you're surrounded by for a reason. And my heart for them is not changing. I want them to know me as much as I want you to know me. That is God's heart. So he says, in exile, when everyone around you believes something different, when they're against you, I want you to seek the blessing for them that they may ultimately know me. You tracking with that? So here we are. What does this mean for us? What do we learn? What does this mean for us? Because I actually think that we're kind of living, you could say, if you're a Christian, in a, in a form of exile. There are parts of our country, and there was a season in our country when it probably felt like the promised land for Christians, right? Where you looked around and said, everyone basically believes in God. Everyone, I mean, there's parts of the country where when you move in, the first thing they're going to ask you is, what church do you go to? Um, how many of you moved to Encinitas? That's the first question everyone asks you. <laughs> Maybe which yoga studio? <laughs> which surf spot certainly is a relevant question. <laughs> but what church do you go to? <laughs> I mean, that's not our culture, right? In fact, my kids have shared stories with even in their friends that it's not even that we're living in an agnostic or an atheist culture, but we're living in a culture that's against Christ. They have conversations that I never had growing up that would attack their faith and label Christians as uneducated, backwards, don't fit in, don't belong. In fact, they're happy every Christian family who moves to Texas, they just go, fine, go, get out of here. Maybe you've heard it. Some of you are like, oh man, we're moving to Texas, sorry. <laughs> So we are, in a way, living in exile. We're in a land where the leaders don't believe what we believe, where they're teaching faith that we don't live by. And we're frankly, a lot of the ways and things that we're teaching and encouraging aren't bringing life to people. I think that we're better off understanding God's ways and the way he leans into compassion and justice and mercy and all of those things. I think that's the better way. So God says, hey, you're in exile now, so how are you going to respond? I want you to pray. I want you to lean in. So how do we learn, what do we learn from this? I want to just give you a couple things to think about. And these are from both stories, and they're not 
they're two disconnected thoughts, but they both come out of this. So track with me for a moment here. I was thinking about these and saying, how do we learn? What does it mean for us to be a blessing? And it starts with this. Seek a complete understanding of Scripture. Now, what do we, why am I saying that? Notice that the disciples had an incomplete view of God. And their incomplete view of God led them down a pretty scary path. Now, they might have just been off a little bit, but anyone, in, if you're into boating or, or navigation, there's this thing called the rule of 60. And it, it talks about if you're one degree off, at a certain point, you find yourself 60 feet away after you go, I don't know nautical miles, so just track with me and smile. It makes sense. It, so basically, if you leave from San Francisco and you're one degree off and you're going to Washington, D.C., by the time you get there, you're going to miss by 50 miles. That's what they say. If you go all the way around the world, you're going to miss by 500 miles or so, or so if you're one degree off. And there's some pretty crazy stories of planes in their navigation when it was not as, in, in fact, in the 60s, there's a Korean airliner that was off by two degrees and ended up flying over the Soviet Union and got shot down because it was just off a little bit. But over time, instead of being over Japan, they were over the Soviet Union to their peril. Sometimes for us, when we have an incomplete understanding of Scripture, just a little bit but not a complete one, we could be one degree off. If we go one degree off for a long time, next thing you know, you turn around and we are way off. And we could see that the disciples in their theology was incomplete. It wasn't a full understanding of who God was. So we want to have that. With our understanding of Scripture then helps shape our worldview. Here's the problem. Many of us let our worldview shape our understanding of Scripture instead of the other way around. Some of us like to let our politics shape our understanding of theology, but our theology should shape our politics. You tracking with me? You can see how if we're just a little off, how all of a sudden we can get really far off. So we want our understanding of God and who he is to shape our worldview, not the other way around. And the way to do that, we need to have a complete understanding of Scripture. When you come to areas of Scripture where you're like, this is confusing or this is hard, interpret scripture with scripture. Read other stories. If this is the only story you ever read about Jesus, you'd be like, oh, okay. So he's pretty harsh. He was pretty mean to this woman for a while. He called her a dog. Like, okay, so if I'm creating all my theology on that, that's called an incomplete view of scripture. <laughs> then you start reading the whole counsel of God and go, oh, okay, this was, this something deeper going on here. So we want to seek a complete understanding of God's word. Complete understanding. Next thing I want you to think about is this. Find your place in God's bigger story. And we talk about this all the time. What I mean by this is we started last week this series called Bless. Loving others in every, loving like Jesus in everyday life. Because we know God's ultimate heart and his mission is that all may know him and love him. That we are God's image bearers. The way we interact with others, the way we live, the way we, uh, all of the things, the way we treat our families and our neighbors, our spouses, our coworkers, that is part of bearing God's image. We're on his mission. So we want to find our place in God's bigger story. News for us, you are not the central character in the story of life. <laughs> you are not. I know you, some of you have probably said that to your kids before. Maybe you've had it said to you, but you're not. God's our central character in this story. And he is gracious enough to invite us in to his story. 
And his story is a good story. It's a life-giving story. It's a story where we experience true justice. We see true compassion, true love. We see all of these things. God's way, I believe, is better. Anyone with me on that? When lived out perfectly. Now, we're not, none of us are going to be perfect. But it's a beautiful picture of the life that God has for us. Find yourself in the story. I want to just share a couple more verses with you to see God's heart. Look at Isaiah 55, or 45, 22. God's writing, he says this, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. Look at God's heart, his mission. He wants all the ends of the earth. He wants everyone to know him, to be saved, to turn to him. That's his heart. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He said, this is good and acceptable in the sight of, our God, of God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of his truth. God's heart for us is that we may know him and come to the knowledge of his truth. If you are here today and you're just exploring faith, I want you to know this is not a conspiracy meeting that we're trying to figure out a way to make you into a Christian. It's not a conspiracy. This is, this is our mission because God wants you to know him and to be a follower of Jesus. So, Cats out of the bag, we want you to know Jesus. Because we believe that there is life that you will discover in Christ that you will not find anywhere else. We believe that. And we believe God's inviting you to be a part of the bigger story. So a question for you to answer then is this. Who has God placed in your life to bless? Who is it that you can as we were called to, in Jer- or the Israelites were called to in Jeremiah chapter 29 to seek the good of the city where they were, to pray for the others, to pray blessing on them. Who is it that God has placed in your life to bless? Maybe it's a person or people. Maybe it's a group of people. Maybe it's the same person that we started off with to say, who is the hardest for you to love? <laughs> Maybe they're in your life for a reason. Who is in your life that God's given you an opportunity to bless? We're actually going to take the next five weeks to, uh, uh, we've been burying the lead, but the word bless, we're going to teach it as an acronym. Stay tuned. We'll see what that means. But there's five easy ways to love others that Jesus models for us. But who are those people? Think of who that person or those people are, and I want you to pray for them this week. Just start praying for them. Say, okay, God. <laughs> and, and that's a scary thing because God likes to hear our prayers and answer them. So <laughs> you start praying for them and look for opportunities that God may place in your life. It's a challenge for all of us this week. And by the way, it doesn't have to be like the hardest person you see in the world. That's okay. You can bless the people that, that you enjoy too. That's okay. So you're just like, man, this is gonna be hard. I don't... <laughs> no, he might be putting people in your life that are actually cool people, so... <laughs> I know the ones that I'm praying for, I have a a group of friends that I play basketball with, we hang out with, and I'm definitely praying, God, how can I be in their life? Coach a baseball team, I get to pray, God, how can I be a blessing in the life of those families? Ultimately, I hope that they find themselves in the bigger picture, the story of God, eventually. So that's your assignment this week. Good with that? I'm going to invite the worship team to make their way back up, and we're going to transition into a time of communion. 
And for us uh, here, communion, and hopefully as you made your way in, perhaps you uh, received, hopefully you received a communion cup and wafer. If not, we have some in the back, and looks like we have a few people who are going to go help you bring them to, to you. For us, in our tradition, communion is a time where we remember the life of Christ. We're going to start with this little piece of this wafer, this bread. We have some, I think, up here in the front. You need some up here? Yep, here we go. We, got, we have some coming. There we go. <laughs> um, we're going to start with this bread, and the bread represents the body of Christ. This is the life he lived, the death he died, and the resurrection of Jesus. <laughs> we are told that in Scripture, Jesus speaks of the bread, and he says, this is my body that was broken for you. So for us, when we take this and we remember the body, the life of Christ, we're actually remembering the same God who looked at the Canaanite woman with actual compassion and mercy. We're looking at the same God who went to the cross on your behalf and on my behalf so that we could have peace with God. So when we take this bread, we're not just going through a routine, remembering the actual that Jesus actually lived and existed and modeled what it looked like to image the Father and to give his life for us so that we could do the same. So when we take the bread, we remember the body of Christ. So let's take it together. When Jesus introduced the, the tradition that we call communion, he then was part of the Passover meal, and he took the cup that traditionally came at the end of the meal and represented the Messiah. And he took that cup, and he said, this cup represents me. He says, this cup is a covenant that I'll make with you. And so when we take it, we remember it's the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross. It was a covenant. It was a promise that he made for us, to us. And guess what? It was based on his goodness, not yours. It was on him saying, I will be enough for you. So when we take this cup, we remember the blood that Jesus shed, which if that's an unfamiliar story, it sounds so crazy, but it fits with the story of scripture where he said, I make a promise. I will never leave you, forsake you, and that my forgiveness is enough. So when we take this juice, we remember the promise that Jesus made for us. So let's take it together. And God, we thank you. As we remember your body and your blood, we remember the death, the life you lived, the death you died. But Lord, we remember the resurrection that happened. That you came to give us life and to give us life abundantly through your son or through you in your life. So God, we thank you and we receive that new life. We receive that forgiveness. We proclaim that. And Lord, we want to join with you in your story. So would you speak to us now and work in our hearts and transform us and change us. And God, if there's anyone here to this morning who does not, who's never made that step of faith towards you, would you draw their heart to you? And if that's you right now in this place, in the quietness of your heart, if you want to take that step towards Jesus, would you pray this prayer with me? And you could pray it quietly in your own heart. Just, if you want to take a step of faith today, just pray, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I don't have all the answers Maybe I still have some doubts. I might have some fears. 
but I want you to forgive me. Would you come and be Lord of my life? If you prayed that simple prayer, all of heaven rejoices over you today. Because it's an act of faith to receive Jesus. And welcome to the kingdom. We're going to respond with some praise through our singing. And so I want to invite you to stand as we end our time. And let's just turn our hearts and reflecting on the story of Jesus and his goodness and what he's done for us as we end our time.